McMaster University has over 210,000 alumni living in 140 countries around the world, and they are some of the most amazing people you would ever want to meet. Unconventional will introduce you to some of our alumni who are working to make our world a brighter place in their own unique way. Join me, Karen McQuig, Alumni Director at MAC, as we meet alumni in the arts, cutting edge entrepreneurs, alumni leading the way in health, technology, education, and more, as we learn the moments that their path from MAC became unconventional. One of the great joys in my role as alumni director is getting to know our student leaders. And today's guest was the MSU's Vice President Finance from 2017 to 2018. Selected by RBC as a next generation disruptor, Daniel Tuba D'Souza has spent the last three years speaking with researchers and industry leaders from the United States, India, Japan, and Italy to understand how the rise of emerging markets and the internet is changing the way companies design, sell, and market themselves to millennials and Generation Z. With his work featured in Inc. Magazine and the Financial Post, Tuba's passion is driven from his experience trying to balance his heritage and identity as a first-generation Canadian and is currently the Vice President of Product and Co-Founder of Crescendo, a tool that helps companies scale their diversity and inclusion programs globally with clients across Canada and the U.S. Join me as we learn more about Tuba's unconventional journey and how he got the nickname of Tuba. So welcome, Daniel, to our unconventional podcast, which seems really strange for me to say your first name, because during your time at <laughs> McMaster, I have only known you as Tuba. And, uh, yes. you know, I often forget that you actually have a real first name. So before we get into the questions, I think everybody would like to know, why, are you, why do you go by the name Tuba? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, and Karen, I don't know if we've ever actually talked about this um, either. Um, but so, two was my nickname now for I think fifteen or sixteen years. Uh, so it goes way, way back. Uh, and the origin of the story. So I've never played the tuba. Um, the origin of the story is that I actually used to be really short and really chubby. Uh, so I used to get called Tubby Tuba all the time. Uh, and then I grew. So I think uh, somewhere through elementary school, uh, I had a huge growth spurt. So I went from four foot 10 and really chubby to five foot seven and super lanky. Um, like I, I woke up one morning and I was like, what the hell happened? <laughs> um, but when I went back to school, um, the, the nickname, the nickname stuck, but the tubby part dropped. So it was just tuba. And after a while, I, like at first I, I, I hated the name. Um, and then when I went to high school, the name followed me. Um, but after a while I was like, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm just going to embrace it at this point. Like it's not, it's not, it's not about my body shape anymore. It's, it's, it's more about like who I am. And so I just started introducing myself as Tuba. Uh, and that was years ago. Um, and now Tuba is more my name than Daniel actually is. So all of my friends called me Tuba. All of my old teachers called me Tuba. My entire team now, uh, half our investors called me Tuba. My dad calls me Tuba. Uh, so yeah, that is, that, is my, that is more my name than Daniel is. <laughs> Do you forget your name is Daniel sometimes? And does your mom still call you Daniel? Yeah, my mom will always call me Daniel. Actually, I got an award uh, when I was graduating that said um, Daniel Tuba D'Souza on it, and my mom was super pissed because she's like, your, your transfer better not say this. Uh, yeah, so my, my mom will never call me Tuba. She, she sticks to my name, but my dad actually calls me Tuba, and uh, some of my cousins do as well. So it's, yeah. it's pretty ingrained in my life. Well, it's a very unique uh, name, just like the sort of career path you've taken from McMaster. <laughs> so um, 
Why don't you kind of walk us through your first few months as a new grad and sort of think about the transition you had from academic life, also a very busy student experience life as being a member of the MSU um, Board of Directors, to your professional life. Do you remember, like, it's not that long ago, but, you know, what was that like for you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so it was only like three, three years ago now. Um, but it was like, I think all of it wasn't too bad, honestly. Um, I, I was thinking about this yesterday. Um, and I think the thing that really helped me uh, was that I had a lot of bridges. And so I think one of the most shocking things about graduating and, and kind of going on to the quote unquote real world is that you're no longer surrounded by people who are your age anymore. You're not living with them anymore. Um, and for me, I had a pretty solid bridge. So the first one was really uh, when I graduated and started working at the MSU. Uh, and so I was VP of Finance. Uh, with the MSU. And so that was uh, like very, very much um, the full-time job for, for the entire year. But it was also nice because I was still surrounded by students. I was still involved in student life. Um, and then when I transitioned from the MSU to starting my company, uh, both of them like overlapped. And so midway through the MSU, while I was applying for jobs and trying to figure out what, what was coming next, uh, I applied to a program called The Next 36. Um, and so The Next 36 is a program that takes uh, 36 young entrepreneurs from across Canada uh, and puts them in what's basically a founder development program where they'll bring in professors from like MIT and Harvard, uh, entrepreneurs who have launched a scale companies to give you a sense of what it's like to actually scale a high growth tech company. And of course, in this, you're actually surrounded by, again, more young people. So 36 other, other entrepreneurs who are around the same age as you. And so for me, um, I got into that program halfway through working with the MSU and the first half was remote. And then the in-person part started right after I finished. And the in-person part was, again, it was in downtown Toronto. And um, I had met two co-founders at the time, uh, who were still my co-founders and starting Crescendo. Uh, but I actually ended up living with them uh, downtown. And then six months after, three months after I lived downtown, I moved to Montreal with them. Um, and it was, it was a lot of bridges, right? So for, the, for an entire year after I finished at the MSU, I was still surrounded um, by people who were around my age, so anywhere from like 20 to 35. Um, who all had like really young entrepreneurial spirits. So it was it was definitely exciting. Uh, and it felt like I was just doing what I like to do, which is work on projects that were really excited to me. And that's really what I did for my undergrad extracurriculars in school, what I did at the MSU, uh, and then what I did after I graduated. So it wasn't too big of a shift, uh, but I, I felt like it was a really nice uh, transition uh, out, of, out of school and into, into the world. So thinking back to your days as VP finance, um, is there one skill you developed when you were doing that experience that you've been able to use every day in your um, business world, your business life? Yeah, there was a lot actually. Like I, I think about that experience and, and for me, like working with the MSU and, and being VP finance was really foundational in a lot of the skills that I use every day now. Um, and, and I mean, some of those are, I think really understanding how to um, communicate effectively with people, um, how to inspire, encourage, and motivate um, others to work on projects, even when those other people are years older than me um, or have vastly different experiences. And so I think, honestly, looking back, there's, there's a lot of stuff that happened, but I think that like pseudo managerial experience was probably one of the biggest ones that impacted me. Um, I mean, a lot of the projects we did when we were creating the grind uh, at 1280, so turning what was what used to be a lounge that no one really used anymore into now what is a I hope still bustling uh, crepe and, and espresso cafe um, was really working with a lot of 1280 staff 
uh, especially the full-time staff who had been there for years and, and getting them excited uh, and wanting to work really hard to bring this, bring this to life. Um, and it's the same thing with working with um, the HSR and getting the kind of uh, the new Presto uh, student pass rolled out and uh, trying to bring in and get, uh, get the new building, the new student building started. So a lot of that kind of communication, I guess a bit of leadership and managerial experience is, is really what I still use every single day today. So were you one of these undergraduates who had a master plan? And if so, what did your master plan look like? And if you didn't, did you have a little bit of a plan when you were leaving the institution? Yeah, hell no, I had no master plan. <laughs> or if I did, it just got like thrown in the wind every year. So I came into undergrad uh, wanting to do research. Um, I wanted to work in like Alzheimer's dementia research. Uh, and that was one of the reasons why I chose McMaster. Uh, was because of how good the wet lab research was on the science side. And then I did my first year um, and I worked in a lab uh, after my undergrad or in that summer after first year. Um, and the, the people were great, the lab was great, but I like hated the experience. Um, and it just, it just really wasn't for me. I'm, I'm too much of a people person that I, I couldn't kind of like, you know, lock myself in a room and stare at a microscope for, for hours and hours and hours every day. Um, and so after that, I was like, well, okay, if I can't do research, <laughs> like, what am I going to do? I, gu I guess I should apply to medical school. Yeah. Like, what else am I going to do with a science degree? <laughs> and then, uh, so that was the next route where I was like, cool, I'll just, I'll just, you know, do my MCAT. And so I did my MCAT twice. First time was awful. Second time did really, really well. Um, and then I had another pivot where I decided that I really didn't want to do medical school anymore. I actually wanted to go into business. Uh, and that was in my fourth year when I had started um, a program called Hack the City, which is basically like a uh, founder development program for like undergrads, master's and PhD students at Mac. Um, but really starting that up, raising money for it, bringing a team together, getting on a bunch of corporate partners to join was something that I loved. Um, and that's when I was like, okay, cool. Um, I want to start a company. Uh, I don't know what I want to do. Uh, I don't know exactly who I want to start with, but I know that this is something that um, I want to be able to do. Uh, and then that was my path right after that. And I figured that out right um, towards the end of fourth year when I was like, yeah, okay, cool. So wet lab research medical school wasn't for me, but this is, this is the route that I want to go. So, so that kind of surprises me because I still remember you and I having a conversation in the student center and it was just when you were wrapping up your term and you like, I'm going to do this, this, and this. So um, I don't know if that makes me feel better mm -hmm. or worse that you had, didn't have <laughs> plan. I know I didn't have a master plan when I graduated. So, and I think a lot of students think that they have to have that, right? Like when you're graduating, like you should know your path and, and often you don't, because if you, if you do, sometimes you miss those opportunities. So you certainly have had different opportunities roll into your um, life past McMaster. What's the, what's the one that stands out the most that you were, that you didn't expect to have, but you grabbed onto? Um, so I think it was, like starting to really, I think, I think the opportunity I really grabbed onto is when our company started getting momentum. Um, so that was a big, big shift. Um, you know, when I, when I graduated, right at the end of my undergrad is when I was like, okay, I want to do business. I didn't exactly know what that looked like yet. Okay. And then throughout my year at the MSU is when I really kind of fleshed it out and I got a lot of, um, I think, hands-on experience and, and it helped me figure out a bit more of like, did I want to go into the corporate world? Did I want to go in the tech world, the consulting world, um, the, the, the startup world? And, and I wasn't exactly sure yet. Um, and a lot of it was, um, I, I kind of look at, looked at myself and said, you know, what are the core qualities that I need to develop to be successful in the business world? And what do I, don't, what do I like not have right now? 
Um, and that's kind of what guided me um, was figuring out, you know, is it the social connections? Is it the, is it the, the financial capital? Um, is it the operational experience? Like which of these am I really lacking right now? And what do I need to start developing? Um, and that I think helped guide me at the beginning. But like, I think up until probably uh, six months out after I finished with the MSU, um, it was a lot of wondering. Um, you know, I didn't know if the company we started was actually going to get momentum. I didn't honestly know at that time if I was willing to commit myself 100% to it, right? I didn't really have much money at the time. Um, I didn't have a lot of experience. I didn't have a lot of connections. Um, but about, I think, three or four months after I left the MSU, and at this point, we'd been working on a company for seven months or eight months, um, was when we started getting momentum. So we got our first paid customer. We had more customers who were in the pipeline. Um, and we were also able to actually get our first uh, bit of venture capital investment. Uh, and that was out of a program called Techstars in Montreal. Uh, and that was about $100,000, um, as well as going through um, this accelerator that really connected us with a whole bunch of people across the world and really helped start scaling our business. And so for me, that was when I grabbed the reins and I was like, I am 100% in. Um, everything else was just like, I'm not thinking about it right now. I'm just going to dedicate myself entirely to this um, and just see where it goes. And so that's, I think, where um, I kind of let I don't know, I, I stopped looking at other opportunities and I was like, let's just dive on this and see see how far this can go. Yeah. So you certainly have an entrepreneurial spirit. So where do you think that came from and, and how do you continue to cultivate it? Yeah, so um, my entrepreneurial spirit came because I could I could never get an actual job. <laughs> so all throughout like high school, I remember I would just go in, I would apply to like to, to Metro, Longos, Fortinos, yeah. Fresco, McDonald's, the burger place down the street, Taco Bell, like literally anywhere and everything. And I, I never got an interview, like nothing. Um, and I, don't, I have no idea why, like to this day, <laughs> like I, I, I seriously don't know. And so um, my first like job was actually me importing and selling watches uh, from China. Um, and I, I initially started, yeah, yeah. I, I remember I found this, uh, I found this website yeah. that was basically like Alibaba before Alibaba was a thing. And I would order some stuff off there because I really wanted like cool accessories to wear in like high yeah. school. I wanted to look cool, but I didn't have any money. And so I was like, cool, I'll buy this watch for $3. And you know, I would do this stuff for myself. And then I think it was my dad that actually pushed me. He's like, oh, you should think about like, you know, seeing if other people want this or other people want to buy this. And I remember at school, people would always be like, oh, that's a really cool watch. Um, and so I like, was like, okay, let's try this. So I like imported a batch. Um, and I like sold my first watch to one of my friends for like 20 bucks. Yeah. Uh, I think it was 10 bucks at that time. And then he happened to be like a really popular person. Uh, and so everyone now wanted this, <laughs> this watch. And so I was like, okay, cool. So I started importing a bunch of watches and selling them at my school. Um, I did that with hats and like accessories as well. And it actually got to the point where I had, um, three people in three different schools, like three different high schools in different cities that I would actually import in wholesale watches too. And then they would go and sell it in their schools. So yeah, and, and these are actual watches. Like this is not, this is not drugs. Like these are like yeah. watches I've imported from, from China. Um, and so that was really like my, my first job. And I made, I made a decent amount of money off that. And I think that was where it kind of instilled in me this idea that like, you know, if you can't, if something's not coming to you, just like, just, just go and do it. Yeah. Um, and that was a, a feeling and, and a motto that I kind of took um, throughout my undergrad experience as well, especially when it came to extracurricular. It's like, if I didn't see something um, that was there that I wanted, um, I ran for a position, I joined a society, joined a club, um, and tried to make it happen from the ground up. And so that happened 
when I was uh, VP Social with the McMaster Science Society, uh, doing a whole bunch of events that we hadn't done before, uh, changing the structure of our formal. Uh, it happened when I ran TEDx Master in my second year, and we kind of just like restructured the entire event to be something that I thought was a lot, a lot cooler than what it was before. Um, and so that's really like how I think I've refined my entrepreneurial spirit is just by um, seeing an opportunity to do something and doing it. Like it didn't make money most of the time. Most of it was really just to start an event or do something cool. Um, but I think all of those, and, and I look back at all those experiences and a lot of the things that I learned in starting an event, in starting a club, um, all really stacked up on top of each other and really grew in size every year that I was in my undergrad to the point where now um, I've actually started my own company and we raised you know, around a million dollars in venture capital today and, and have over a million in sales. And I, like, I think about it and I look back to you know, seven years ago when I started my undergrad and every year we're just something a little incrementally more. Yeah. So do you still have the watch? Oh God, no, no, no. Those are all gone. <laughs> I actually saw some photos on Facebook the other day and I was like, I don't know why anyone bought these. <laughs> I like, they were awful. They were hideous watches, like plastic, really crappy. I just, I think I was really, I got good at photography where like I had, yeah. um, I think, we, I don't know if it was my phone or something, but I had like a setup where I would have a bunch of black sweaters. Yeah. Um, I put the watches on top in like a nice order and then I'd have like a spotlight coming down. So the pictures look really nice. Um, but I have no idea why <laughs> I wore them or like anyone else wanted to buy these things. Oh, I had no idea. Wow. Wow. That could be <laughs> To, uh, to Ben is entrepreneurism. Um, so what's your, what do you think your biggest challenge is that you face as a young entrepreneur? Like to me, yeah. I would think that it's, there are moments when it must be so scary and like you're taking big risk, like, but that's mm -hmm. me thinking what it's like to be an entrepreneur. What, you tell me what the biggest challenge is. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a lot. Um, <laughs> I mean, the, the, the first and foremost, like the biggest one is um, the, like the classic feeling of imposter syndrome. Um, like here you are fresh out of undergrad starting this company when like, you know, you haven't had any quote unquote real experience. Um, I remember I, I would feel this a lot um, when we were in that program called Techstars, like uh, myself, and my co-founder, Stefan, uh, Sage is a bit older than us, but we were like the youngest people in this cohort of people who were starting companies by like seven to 10 years. Uh, everyone there was either in their like late twenties or early thirties. They had worked at a couple of big companies before they had a bunch of experience and they were, you know, using that experience to other company. And for me, I remember just like, and even now it, it really feels strange and it feels like I shouldn't be doing this or I feel like I'm faking it. Um, when the reality is, is that like, you know, over the years I've, I've gained a ton of experience that has helped me get to where I am today and do the things that I'm doing. And so that would be like the number one. Um, the second thing is just like learning to deal with rejection. Um, like we're, we're so Crescendo is a company that's focused on diversity and inclusion. And, you know, right now that is the topic of the hour where everyone is thinking about it. Everyone is talking about it and, and really has been over the past three, four months. Um, ever since George Floyd was murdered and protested erupted around the world. But three years ago, um, it wasn't as much of a topic. I mean, it was still a topic, but, but it really wasn't taken as seriously in the business world as it is right now. And so, you know, we had to deal with people telling us it, like what we were doing didn't matter. No one was going to buy this. No one was going to use it. No one was going to invest in it over and over and over and over again. And I look at like the history of Crescendo and it's a history of people being like, this won't work. And then I was doing a thing and being like, Hey, we did it. And then they're like, yeah, yeah, fine. But this won't work. Um, even today where we now have big enterprise clients who are using Crescendo, spending a ton of money on it, uh, users who use it and love it. And we still have people who are like, yeah, yeah, all of these things are going to happen. You know, you scale, whatever, but this won't work. 
You can't become a billion dollar company. You can't do this thing. And so that's, that was really hard. I think in the early stages uh, to, to learn how to deal with that. And I think like find values that you can really live and abide by. And then the last thing is just like learning how to navigate really tough situations, like situations where you're dealing with someone's livelihood, like someone that you know, and you've become close to like someone on your team um, and a business decision that you have to make for the company. And these are things that, you know, you would think they just happen once in a blue moon, but they're happening all the time. And so that is, is the third one is just, I think, learning how to separate out, you know, your emotions and, and really define what you think is important and what values you want to live by and, and learn to make decisions that align with those values. Um, so yeah, those are, I think those are the, the top of yeah. mind. Those are the really, really hard things. That's a lot. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Crescendo? So what it does, what your goal is, and you know, if you're going to put yourself tuba in two years, what is Crescendo going to look like in two years? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so Crescendo itself, it combines micro learning and analytics um, to support inclusion at global companies. So, I mean, to put it in words that are easier to understand, um, traditionally companies for their diversity and inclusion program, um, for the part where it comes to inclusion, which is making people feel like they actually belong to your company, they want to stay your company. Typically, companies would do like a workshop once a year. Um, and that was really the standard and the norm. Um, those don't really work. I mean, you go into workshops, you forget it. But also, and, and really more importantly, those are impossible to scale. You don't do them once a year because they're expensive to do and it's hard to get everyone in a room together. And if you try to scale that across a company that has offices all over the world, um, it's like near impossible. And so that's really what Crescendo solves. So Crescendo is a software that um, basically sends individual employees small bite-sized pieces of content. So uh, videos, articles, real-world news, um, Twitter threads, uh, with a goal of helping them learn uh, about different types of people and also about issues that are happening in the world. And we do that um, at scale. So it's a software that right now works inside of Slack. And so it communicates with every employee in a one-on-one -on -one message. Uh, we're also building it onto Microsoft Teams and email as well. Um, so that's, that's Crescendo in a nutshell. Um, over the past, like, I, to think about the next few years, I'd like think about the past two years and like, we've gone from basically being an idea that three of us had um, at, like worked through and, and came up with after like a period of six months of failing consistently um, to getting our first customer, to getting our 10th customer, to um, hiring our first team members and to now, and it's been absolutely nuts, like the past six, seven months, um, we've actually grown about eight times uh, in the past uh, eight months or wow. six months, whenever, whenever COVID started, I don't know, feel like yeah. three years ago. Um, I know it, it seems like but, the world never existed before COVID some days. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, that's where we are right now. And so it's really just kind of been a rocket ship curve over the past two years. So if I'm thinking about the next two years, um, I, I'm seeing that rocket ship curve really continue. Um, so right now, Crescendo is nine employees uh, really across Canada and the U.S., um, within two years, I see us uh, at least doubling uh, or tripling our team to be about 20 to 30 people. Um, I see us going from uh, around a million in, in revenue where we are right now um, to at least five to 10 million. Um, I see us working with well, what is right now a couple, like three or four really marquee big enterprise clients. Um, so you having a lot more uh, household brands um, as some of our customers. And so at a very like high level, I, I think that's where I see it. It's honestly so hard to predict because things mm. like so much has changed this year and last year, but I honestly have no idea where the next two years will take us. So you have another project that you're working on. 
um, correct? And so maybe tell us a little yeah. bit about that. And and how how on earth do you balance <laughs> like all this stuff and still, I'm assuming, have a little bit of a personal life because everybody needs some time for themselves. So how so tell us about your new your, your new project and and how do you balance both? Like all 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 the yeah. you know balls you have in you know juggling. Yeah, yeah. So crescendo is my main my main day to day. That is like mostly what I focus on. Um, a, a couple of years ago, I, I started traveling a lot, um, and I love traveling specifically because I got to meet new people, I got to explore new cultures, um, and really what it showed me was that there is there's a lot happening in different parts of the world. Specifically, when you start looking at out east, um, like Africa, India, Southeast Asia, or, or at least countries within Africa, um, China. There are massive, massive changes happening that are that are changing the livelihood of everyone. And I, I really learned about this first. I think actually last January, uh, when I was in India, I was um, I was invited to speak at a conference, which was super cool. Um, but I started to realize something that, like, I, I I don't know why no one else knew this or I knew about it at home, but in India, there's a huge change happening in terms of infrastructure. And so traditionally, India is a population of 1.3 billion people. Traditionally, only 200 to 300 million were actually connected to the internet. So that is a very small fragment of this massive country. From 2018 um, up until 2023, it's projected that an additional 500 million people will have access to the internet for the first time through mobile devices. Wow. And that is huge. I mean, you consider (laughs) the, the population of the U.S. is 300 million. Yeah. And so more people than the entire United States will have access to the internet. And this is happening in India, mostly in India, also hugely in China, also hugely in parts of Southeast Asia and countries within Africa. And what this is doing is it's, it's dramatically changing the way that people live and interact with the world. And it's also impacting the way that companies look at how they're growing. So Amazon, Walmart, Netflix, um, have all made massive, massive investments into India. Um, but there's so much that I think we're, we're consumed with here in the Western world of what's going on here in North America, but we're not looking at these. Mm-hmm. Uh, and really, when we look at it, like that, that is the future. Like that is what is changing the way that we live and work and even interact with the world. Like some of the top ranked channels on YouTube now are no longer kind of like European or, or Western YouTubers. They're, they're, they're Bollywood and, and, and Indian music channels. And so that's when I decided to kind of distill a lot of this information. And so uh, I have a side project called uh, Verandra Media Lab. So it's uh, verandralab.com. Um, but it's, it's where I kind of distill a lot of my thoughts and a lot of research uh, into what's actually happening in India how uh, the culture there is changing with the introduction of the internet and how that's impacting everything from technology to education to finance to politics Um, and i'm hoping to really be able to start with india go deep uh, and then really start to expand to other parts of the world and other emerging countries um, that are really rapidly changing so that's uh what i'm doing on the side it's like a bit of my my side passion so it gets me gets me out of my every day um and uh, yeah, I think balancing it is, is hard. I mean, like it really depends on what's happening with the company that dictates my everyday life. Um, you know, I had a bit more time uh, a couple months ago to, to work in a lot of Verander Media Lab. Um, now it's a bit tighter, so I don't have as much time because things are really hectic at the company. Um, but I'm trying to carve out, you know, a, a day or two, like make sure my weekends are free um, to really uh, be able to just dig into this, do research and write. Yeah, wow. Do you sleep? Um, yeah, I sleep, I sleep very well, actually. Good, I think, I think there's some misconceptions <laughs> that you don't sleep, but it's important. If you, you can't sleep, you can't do anything else. So, exactly. Yeah, I get, I get a good a good, good eight hours every day. Good. Perfect. Perfect. So, um, you know, what what impact, you know, you could you say that, you know, um, 
I want to say. So COVID's been, you know, impacting everybody. Like how has it impacted your your business, your business and your side project? Is it making it easier, harder um, for you? As- yeah. So I'll start with the side project I see easier to explain. Um, it made it a bit harder. Um, traveling was a big part of that. Um, right. When I was in India, I did a ton of research, met a ton of new people, and I was able to do research that way. I was really hoping to be able to continue to travel and, and meet more people and expand my research that way. But obviously now with COVID restrictions, that, that's impossible. Um, on the business side, we were very lucky. So there are a core segment of businesses in the technology space that have done really well with COVID. Uh, and there's a lot of companies who have not. Um, and fortunately, we are one of the ones who have done really well because we were a software company that was really built for remote teams. And so what happened was as soon as COVID hit, all of these big enterprise companies, like big, you know, 1,000, 10,000 plus companies went fully remote for the first time ever. And so for us, um, our business really took off at that point because all of a sudden diversity and inclusion teams who were so used to just doing in-person events and trainings had nothing. Um, and that's really where Crescendo came in. And so it's been a, it's been a really big accelerator for us. Um, but, you know, I say that with a caveat because um, I've seen my friends' businesses go, go down. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen family businesses go down. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been really hard. And so I think for us, it's, it's been good. Um, but I'm also really thankful um, and, and, yeah, and grateful that, that we're in this space that we are. So, you, I mean, you work with um, companies. So where do you, this, you might not be, you, you might just be guessing just like the rest of us, but, you know, based on your sort of experiences, companies have really, as you said, shifted from everybody's in the office to everybody's at home. Where do you think, what do you think the workplace is going to be like when we come out of this? Yeah, um, it's a big mix. Because it, it also, I mean, the first thing is it really depends on the, on the company culture, because there's a lot of companies who are older, who are just so ingrained with working in person that they are, even now they're trying to push their employees to come back to work. And then on the other side, you see like more modern tech companies like Shopify, for example, um, that already had a remote work policy before and now they just embraced it. Mm-hmm. Where they're like, everyone can work remote. There's no reason for you to come to the office. And I think realistically, I think when you look at like, when you look at it as like a curve of, you know, fully remote company on one side and fully in-person traditional company on the other side, I think what's happening is that that curve is getting pushed up. And so in the past, you know, it was all fully in person. And then slowly as technology became better, as video conferencing became better, access to the internet became better, it slowly started shifting uh, where people had, you know, blended policies. Um, what's happened, I think, with COVID is that we've taken what would have been five or six years in progress and really squished it down to four months. Mm-hmm. And so now companies who were thinking about adopting remote like work from home policies now have remote work from home policies. And a lot of companies as well are canceling their leases on buildings. Um, they're downsizing their offices and they're saving a lot of money. And the other thing that's happening is companies are being forced to learn how to be productive, how to manage and how to maintain their culture in a world that's remote. And so when you combine these savings um, from like commercial real estate with um, a shift in company culture to be more remote, I think realistically what's going to happen is that the majority of companies are going to be uh, fairly mixed. Yeah. where they're going to have a really strong work from home policy, but they're also going to be able to have uh, the ability to come into the office. Um, and I think that that's really what we're going to see. Like, my, like I talked with my mom too, and my mom works at Toyota uh, in their head office. And um, you know, they're trying to push everyone to come back to work. But even then, um, they're already talking about having work from home policies where everyone works a couple of days from home a week uh, well into next year. Yeah. And so I think that's really what we're going to start seeing is that blended style. Yeah. 
So if we were going to, if you were going to offer some advice to a graduating student as they head to pre leave McMaster and head out into the real world, what would that, what would the tuba advice be? Oh man. Okay. So the tuba advice, oh, there's a lot of stuff I can probably say. So <laughs> the first one is, um, actually, I think the first one is really like leverage your connection. So you have a lot more connections than you think. Um, if you take the effort to just go out and ask people. And for me, this was a big thing when I had started Hacking City because I didn't think I had any connections. And then I just started reaching out to uh, alumni. The first person I reached out to actually was Teddy Saul. Oh. Um, and so he was still working at McMaster. We had been trying a couple times. I just shot him a message on LinkedIn, I think, yeah. or Facebook, one of the two. And I was like, hey, I'm starting this thing. I'd love to get your advice. And then I did the same thing with a bunch of other alumni who I like vaguely knew in Hamilton. So like Huzefa Saeed was one of them. Um, Alyssa Lai was another one. Um, alumni that I had just seen around that I knew still cared about McMaster, still cared about students. Uh, and I was like, hey, I have this idea. I like, I would love to talk to you and figure out like how, how I can do this thing. And those are my first like real connections because they connected me with other people and events and opportunities that I was able to, you know, meet and build a relationship with the city manager at or do a pitch to IBM at. And these are all through connections and, and places that, that these alumni had really kept me. And so the first thing I would say is like comb through your list, um, hit up alumni. So go on LinkedIn. I think you can filter by um, school uh, or you can go to school and you can, you can filter by like job role. Um, and that'll give you a whole bunch of McMaster alumni who are in different parts of the world and different careers. Very easy to reach out to, hit them up with a cold LinkedIn request add a note and say, Hey, I'm like a young master grad. I'm like trying to figure, um, you know, X out. Um, you know, do you have any advice for me? Or like, if anything, I'd love to be able to hop and call you for 15 minutes just to talk about this. Uh, most people will say yes, uh, because it was really hard graduating. And I think all of us kind of want to give back. Um, the other thing is also, um, and this is like a big plug to alumni like services as well, but, um, there's, uh, I forget what it's called. And then can probably know the, um, it's like the alumni mentorship portal. Yes. It's yeah. Uh, yeah where you can yeah. sign up to get yep. We have a mentorship yeah, yeah, portal. Yeah. So yep. Do that. Um, I actually do that. I did that after graduated and I met a couple of people through it and it was yep. really helpful just to like know who else is out there in the world. Um, but those two, I would say are like my biggest pieces of advice to start leveraging that network because there's a lot of cool NAC grads that you don't know who are doing interesting things. Yeah. Um, and they are your ticket to getting into a job, getting into a program, whatever it might be. When I got into the next grade six or when I had an interview for it, the first person I actually messaged um, was Janelle Hines. Uh, who yep. was in engineering, um, but and I, I like vaguely knew her through things, yep. uh, but I knew that she was the only other McMaster undergrad uh, who had gone through this program. And so I messaged her and she gave me really helpful interview advice uh, that really helped me when Great. I was in the program. So yeah, I, I'm going to stop there and say just leverage the show out That's of your connections. Good. Well, I'm so proud of you that you promoted the program, but yes, we do have a mentorship <laughs> program. It's great for students, young alumni, and there is a ton of alumni who are happy to to share their wisdom and uh, and help help everybody out because you know we all loved Mac and that's great to do. Okay, so Tuba, I'm going to ask you another question. So, where do you see yourself professionally? A little future question in five years. Where do you, mm. you think is going to be keeping you busy in five years? Yeah, so I think about this a lot actually, um, and I've I, I kind of stopped putting like I think names or um, specific locations or things that I wanted to be at at a certain place of time because. I think this life throws you all sorts of like left hook punches and you just have to roll with it. Um, and so what I've really settled on is in the next five years, um, I want to get to the point where I can have a really scalable, tangible impact on the world. 
And that can mean a lot of things. And I think the reason why I keep it at this level is because every single year I learn more and more about what impact on the world looks like and what is possible. And for me, I really focus on like three areas that I kind of mentioned earlier. One of them is social capital. So like, who do you know? Who's in your network? Who trusts you? Who learns or has heard about your reputation or who have you worked with in the past? Uh, and who will be willing to work with you in the future? That's like number one. The second one is financial capital. Um, it's hard to do things when you're swimming in debt. And so really being able to get to the point where you can sustain yourself, sustain you know, an early family, um, sustain your own family, um, that's like the second aspect. And then the third one is um, operational skills. So being able to actually do things that I want to do and, and have done that. And so for me, the, the areas that I'm really focusing on <laughs> are really all three of them, um, but, but I think more uh, the first one and the third one. Um, I want to be able to meet more people who are doing amazing things all over the world. Um, and I've been able to be really fortunate to meet people in the States who are doing really interesting work when it comes to diversity and inclusion and technology, uh, meet people in India, in, in Southeast Asia, who are doing really interesting work there. But I want to meet more people like that. Um, and on the, on the third one, the operating skills, I really want to learn how to, how to scale a company. So in the startup world, you, there's like three big stages. There's zero to one, so zero to one million. 1 to 10, uh, 1 to 10 million, then 10 to 100. 0 to 1 is just like figuring out what you're selling um, and getting to the point where there's enough people to buy it that you know you have something that's really impactful. Okay. And that's like really where we were over the past three years. 1 to 10 is you've now found a thing that's impactful. It's really about processes. So it's about refining what you have, selling what you have, and building processes at that scale as you start to grow your company. And that's really the next journey for me is getting from that one to 10 and mm -hmm. learning how to be a tech, like a, a, you know, an executive at a company, uh, learning how to really properly build processes on my teams and manage people in a way that can scale from what this one person right now, um, you know, to 10 to 20 to 50. And so, yeah, I mean, it's kind of a convoluted answer, but over the next five years, I really see myself developing those two areas um, and get to the point where I can have that really big, I think, tangible impact in the world. So what's, what, what is generally the toughest of the three time periods? If you, is it zero to one, one to 10, oh 10 to 100? <laughs> Honestly, like all of them are really difficult and they're all difficult because of different reasons. And yeah. so um, zero to one is like the first big threshold. Um, there's some, I don't know what stats are like real out there, but like 95% of companies who like start up, they die. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a very small percentage of them that actually get past that 1 million mark. Uh, and it's it's hard and it's very, very true because they, you just have to figure out what works and it's a lot of luck. Like if, COVID, if everything in the world didn't happen, if COVID didn't happen, like I don't know where we would be right now. Mm -hmm. um, one to 10 is different because it requires like an entirely different mindset and a different set of experiences. Myself, my two co-founders, none of us have scaled the company. We've all started things, but none of us have gotten it to this point of scale. And so really now the test for us is, you know, can we shift our mindsets? Can we start thinking more strategically and act in a very different way that we did from that zero to one stage. And a lot of people can. Mm -hmm. And so in this time, you'll find that a lot of co-founders actually leave their companies because they don't like how things have changed anymore. Um, a lot of companies get acquired or get shut down. Um, and so that's like its own set of challenges. And then 10 to 100, like, I don't even know what that looks like. But that's like, <laughs> that's like, that's like another, that's like another set of challenges over there. Yeah. Well, when you get to that, give me a call and we'll do another podcast and we'll find out how it goes from 10 to 100 million. <laughs> <laughs> will do will yeah. do okay so if we wrap we're as we're heading to the uh, wrapping up we're going to do some of our unconventional questions so i'm going to do some rapid fire questions cool. for you all right favorite memory. All right, all right favorite memory of mcmaster 
Um, favorite memory is a collection of memories, but it is um, just being at home in my student house at 2 a.m. with all six of my other housemates in one of our housemates' rooms, just like talking about God knows what three nights a week. Um, don't know what we talked about, but like that feeling of I think just being there and being around them, just like goofing around when we all had exams the next day, um, is the thing that I still remember to this point very vividly. Uh, cool. Best COVID purchase? A new puppy. Um, oh. I, yeah, yeah. So we have, we have two, I, I'm at home now. It's like, I was in Toronto and I just came back home now because yeah. of COVID. Um, we've got two puppies, one's a year old and the other one we uh, just picked up three months ago now. Um, and, uh, they're actually brothers. So they're from the same breeder, uh, oh, same parents. Cool. Um, yeah. So they are, they're super cute, but that's definitely been the best scope purchase so far. Right. And, and the name of the puppy? Uh, Jackson. Jackson. Oh, that's a fine name. All right. What book is on your nightstand? What are you reading? So um, I've got, I do a bunch of ebooks, um, but uh, actually the book on my nightstand is um, the uh, third Harry Potter. Um, I'm actually rereading the entire Harry Potter series because it's like such a nice, fun, light thing to take my mind off things. Yep. Um, and on the other side, I'm reading um, a book, a new book by Ray Dalio, uh, who's like a big economist um, called The Changing World Order. Um, that's about... Um, really a lot of the stuff I'm interested in how countries in the East, specifically China, um, is really becoming a new world economic power. Um, so very, very different styles of books, but those are the two things that I would say are on my nightstand. Um, what's your idea of perfect happiness? Oh, um, honestly, I, I don't think I have two lofty goals for this. It's, um, it's really, I think, spending quality time with people that I love. And so, um, a couple weekends ago, before we went into like this second lockdown, um, my old housemates, so all seven of us for the first time, we were able to get back together and we went up north to my cottage and we just hung out there for like four days and had our own like pseudo alumni homecoming yeah. or whatever homecoming was supposed to be. <laughs> um, and so like that for me was really nice. And it's the same feeling I have when I'm able to just hang out with my family, um, hang out with my, with my girlfriend. Um, and, and yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good. What's your personal motto? Oh God. Um, I think I have a bunch. Um, one of them, I think that is the one that I've really taken to heart, um, is make time, make time for what matters. Um, and for me, that's really like, I think you can get super busy with life, super busy with your project, your company, your work, whatever you're doing. Um, but at the end of the day, just make sure that you carve out the time you need to spend time with the people that you love. Um, and for me, this really, I think, came uh, in my undergrad when my best friends passed away um, in second year. Um, and I, like, barely spent any time in the summer before because I was, like, so obsessed with all my extracurriculars. And I look back and I'm like, it's probably one of the biggest things I regret is, yeah. you know, taking time away from doing science stuff and, and spending it with my friend uh, who I can't anymore. So that, that's, that's a big one. And then the other one is um, leave the world better than you found it. So I'm a, I'm a big, uh, big proponent of um, I think community leadership um, and you know when you join a community doing what you can to to make it better than than when you came in um, and I would really encourage everyone to, to take that one to heart oh very lovely and then we'll end with one song that best describes your time at McMaster oh god um, honestly this is so cliche but like anything the Arkells um, I'm like, I'm, I'm not a huge music person, but for me, like, you know, Kells was like the one, and I'm just like, like 90% off the desk, but like the thing that really like blended a lot of my undergrad experiences. So even now, uh, when I hear like, uh, like Leather Jacket or like any of the old Arkell songs from like 2013 or 2017, that is like quintessential McMaster, both for me, like, and like all of my housemates. 
There you go. Well, that's a fine way to end with a McMaster band. Yeah. So thanks. <laughs> thanks, Duba, for spending time with us on Nconventional. Um, it was a great conversation. And I know we all wish you the best on all of your um, your uh, adventures and your companies. And uh, we will be keeping a watch on you. So don't be surprised when we call because I'm sure you're going to be like 100 million like that in a snap. Fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> thanks all so right. much, Karen. It was thanks. a pleasure.